0: Hi, and welcome to another Manapod podcast. Today, you're going to recognize her by just her looks alone, but her music is phenomenal. The one and only Frida Payne. She's an American singer and actress, and she's best known for her career in music during the mid-1960s through the mid-1980s. But she's still going strong today, and her hit single, Band of Gold... number one hit and it played it's still playing so can you imagine 40 years 60 years of success i mean that's amazing so welcome frida thank you wow you (laughs) you look marvelous
1: oh thank you so much (laughs) so we
0: uh we both read
2: your book and this by the way people should go and get it uh um Yes. Gold. Band of gold. how she yep. looks almost the same, you know, wow. well, years later. You know, they cool.
1: say looking good on the outside, but the inside is still <laughs> old. <laughs> the inside is the inside.
2: <laughs> so the interesting thing about this book for people, you know, who may not be into biographies and stuff, this book is a fascinating story about the music industry uh, Motown records, uh, you know, the music scene in the 60s, 70s, 80s. So it's a good read. And there's lots of interesting stories in here that we're going to want to get to. But I think Mike has the first question for you.
0: Yes. Well, if, first of all, the foreword written in your book is from Mary Wilson, who was yes. one of the original Supremes. You Did you ever work together, you and Mary? Did you
1: we uh, probably have in the past some in, in one form or another, especially when we were, uh, when Mary was doing her own thing, not as, not as a Supreme herself, you know, at that time, because mm-hmm. Mary became a, a singular artist after she disbanded the Supremes. Mm-hmm. So she became an artist on her own.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, we were great, we became great friends. And how that basically happened was uh, my sister Sherry was hired by Mary back in 19, I think 73 around there and to become a replacement Supreme replacing Cindy Burton, no, Gene Terrell, mm. because Sherry was hired as a lead singer and she had a signed contract with Motown Records. And uh, they did record, I think a, an album or two before uh, Mary decided to disband the uh, group and she went on her own. And then Sherry continued and she formed a group called Former Ladies of the Supremes. Ooh,
3: interesting. And they
1: still perform to this day. Wow. Uh, so that's that.
0: Well, so you grew up in Detroit, right?
1: Born and reared in Detroit, Michigan. Yes.
0: And why do all the big stars come from Detroit? It's an amazing thing. All the uh, Motown uh uh players came from Detroit is that because Barry Gordy was there but you were there and Barry Gordy said well, in in the in the book it's quoted you were the one that got away I'm he the, one that, he, away. the one that got
1: away you were the one that got away got the man that got away I was the one that got away and you said was it because of Barry being there it's both Barry had the talent the, the talent was there and Barry was there, and he became the, the catalyst to bring all those people together. So you might say that it was like a marriage. It, it, God was in the working, you know, they, I believe in the higher power. And God sort of brought these people together from the very beginning. I was there when it first started happening, before there was even a mention or uh, of a Motown or even Tamala. And Anna Records, which came before Motown, by the way, Mm -hmm. and I was Barry Gordy's first female protege as a teenager. I was like fourteen, maybe thirteen. I was 13 or fourteen years old, and he was looking for talent, and he found he saw me. He found he he sought me out because I had appeared on television, winning talent contest, and you know, and uh, so he had kind of like heard about this teenage girl who was who was really good and all that. And he uh, and he sought me out and we and he did write songs for me. He wrote uh, four, it was like three or four songs for me and we recorded them at United Sound, which was the standing recording studio in Detroit at the time. And it was located right on West Grand Boulevard, ironically, right down the street from where Hitsville is located to this day. Hmm because they were all homes except United Sound was there. It had been there. I mean, people did their commercials there. Anybody that wanted to do a demo or recording, they did it at United Sound.
3: Wow.
2: Well, you know, you had a lot of, you know, your life has been interesting because between you and your mom and your attorney, you kind of navigated your own course. You know, Barry Gordy was trying to sign you and you ended up going with Invictus instead. And then uh, the one of the coolest stories was how you got involved with Duke Ellington uh, and his band. And he had made an offer to you to tour and your mom felt it was really uh, unfair to you. And, right. and so you moved on from there. But tell us how, I mean, how does how does somebody who starts as basically kind of a nobody, but has talent, how did you navigate your way through Barry Gordy and Motown and Duke Ellington. I mean, it's just fascinating.
1: Well, you I, I just have to say that's how it was, that's how it went. You know, like like everybody has their story, like their very beginnings. And it's these are the things that just happened. Uh, I auditioned for Duke Ellington uh in Detroit. It was it was at the Gotham Hotel. And I mean, that's another story altogether. His his son, Mercer Ellington, had been a guest in our home, in my home with my mother and every. And uh, he heard me sing. He listened to me sing. I stood up in the living room and sang for him. And he says, oh, I love your voice. He says, uh, I want my dad to hear you. And so they arranged it for me to, uh, to be taken down to the Gotham Hotel where Duke was staying and the, and the band. And I sang for him in his suite. He had a piano in his suite and he immediately said i love your voice he says you remind me of lena horn at the time and i that was a real compliment
3: mm-hmm. because
1: lena horn at that time was the most beautiful woman of color in the business and she was a huge she was a superstar she was a superstar at that time yeah. and i thought that was a great compliment and he said i would like to hear you sing with the with the band but Uh, we're leaving in the morning to go to Pittsburgh and if someone can bring you to Pittsburgh I would love to bring you up and sing with the band that's what and that happened yeah I mean that's uh,
2: fascinating I mean here you are this what 14 15 no by
1: that time I was 17
2: 17 but still here you are being uh, allowed to perform with one of the most iconic bands in the history of music How, how did that feel
1: surreal, (laughs) surreal, but I just did it. It was like, okay, you know, this is great. And I just, I felt comfortable doing it. I mean, of course I was probably nervous. I'm sure I was back. And I met Billy Strayhorn that when I was in Pittsburgh at that time, because my mother, I was with my mother and my mentor, Mac Ferguson. And we stayed at the same motel, hotel rather, motel, hotel. In Pittsburgh, it was called the Holiday House, and ironically, years later, let's say like maybe fifteen years later, I wound up headlining there. That's amazing. You know, that's that same place, that same uh, nightclub, and uh, Duke heard me sing with the big band, and then he and then they moved on to Vegas, and then. uh, we, my mother and I, and Mac Ferguson, we joined them in Vegas because we went to Vegas to join them because I thought I was going to wind up signing, but I, of course, he insisted on maintaining uh, whatever was in the contract. And my parents, my mother, and our attorney, Alan Early Jr., didn't agree. He felt that there should be some changes made. I was 17. The contract was ten years. Mm-hmm. It was too long. It should not exceed my twenty-first birthday. You know, th- little things sure,
3: like that. sure,
0: yeah. sure, <laughs> the right thing, right?
1: Yeah, little things like so, that. And so who did you also? Hang the pay out scale. With? The pay scale was. Uh, my mother said, "What if in in a few years you've made my star, my daughter, a big star, and she's commanding thousands of dollars uh, to work else- elsewhere." Uh, would you adjust her salary? He said, no, it would stay the same. So.
0: <laughs> okay. So who did you hang out with in the early days? Who were some of your buddies that you sang with and went out with and just some of the big stars of today?
1: Quincy Jones would be one. Wow. Sammy Davis Jr. Uh Who else back then? Oh, my God. There, well, um, Barry.
0: Barry Gordy.
1: Oh, well, Barry. Yeah. Well, You're Barry. Right, right. Yeah. Barry. Yeah.
0: And what about Smokey?
1: Well, I, I met Smokey. Barry introduced me to Smokey back when they were just beginning.
3: Wow.
1: I met Smokey and Claudette and all the gang. You know, they were just uh, they were just beginning. I mean, they were just beginning with Barry, literally. Mm-hmm. And uh, Brian, Eddie Holland. Lamont Dozier I had gone to school with him we were in we were in the same class for like three years straight at Hutchins Junior High it was a middle school I think seventh eighth and ninth grade
3: mm-hmm.
1: and then I went on to Central High and then he went on to another high school the- but I didn't see him again after that until uh I he started working with the Barry and then Barry put him with uh, uh, Brian and Eddie to become a produce, a producing team. And then they started producing for the Supremes and, and, the, and they're the ones that brought the Supremes out of the no hit category into a hit category. They were the ones responsible for the Supremes finally taking off.
2: And they had a falling out with, with Motown and started their own record label Invictus Right. And they were, because they were suing each other, they weren't allowed to write any new music. And so your song, it's a fascinating story. The Band of Gold song was attributed to people who didn't really write it because they couldn't have their names on it. Right. Uh, And yet, you know, with all the turmoil,
0: here comes this song that fits you perfectly and becomes this huge hit. And it was, she wasn't comfortable with the song as as you know, right? You weren't comfortable well, with I, it.
1: I, I felt that it was written, it was meant for a younger artist, like a really, you know, like 15, 14, 16, 17 year old artist. I was 28 at the time. And I said, I'm a grown woman. I'm mature. You know, I've been around a little bit. And And this is a really, this is for a younger singer. And so Ron Dunbar, who was rehearsing who was showing me the song and, and was rehearsing it with me uh he said Frida don't worry about that just sing it <laughs> <laughs> and I did I'm glad I did yeah, uh, yeah. yeah for sure yeah uh,
0: that that must have it went it probably went past gold right it where did it take you
1: oh by oh well by now, it's sold over and over and over again, all these years now. It's still selling. I mean, it's still being played on the radio, over the airwaves, internet, all over the place. You know, Spotify, uh, Sirius XM, Soul Town. Oh, they played that. Uh- Are you
0: ever driving down the street in your car listening and it comes on? Have you ever, has that happened to you? Oh before? yeah,
1: this, just a few months ago, I was going to, I was on my way to Costco. <laughs> And and they and they and uh, Band of Gold came on, so then I you know I parked and went into Costco. I guess I was there for like about 45 minutes, maybe close to an hour, and then I came out. And then as I started dr- getting ready to drive home, Bring the Boys came on. I said, "Oh my God, <laughs>
2: that's great." You sing to those songs when you hear them in the car?
1: Uh, not really. <laughs> Not really. I just listen, you know, and, and I have a smile on my face. So that's, one, that's of, the, so one of the
2: fascinating stories that's kind of uh, sadly still kind of timely was when you were in Vegas, uh, Duke was playing at, at uh, one of the hotels there. The
1: Riviera Hotel yeah. in Casino. and Casino. So
2: you guys went there thinking that you would be staying there and and you were told by somebody. Uh, who was walking on the street who said no 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 that you stay on the west side there's a hotel there and even duke stays there he wasn't allowed
1: to stay absolutely we're talking about 1961 i mean that was like certain uh, certain southern states that was the segregation that was um segregation you you know was still very strong The civil rights bill had not even been signed yet. Okay, I think that happened in 63, 63,
3: 64.
1: Uh, If we had been in the South, we wouldn't have been able to stay in a white hotel or motel at all, or sit in a restaurant and be served. Okay, that was a white restaurant. So what happened being from Detroit, Detroit was a Northern city. And there was no, like, segregation or, or anything like that. I mean, of course, you know, we still knew that things were different. Right. Uh, with certain, not all, but not cer- certain white people, because I had plenty of white friends. And uh, anyway, we arrived in the evening after having driven from Detroit. And um it was me, my mother, and Mac Ferguson, my mentor. And we kept, st- we were on the strip. and we kept stopping at different motels to get a room or a couple of rooms and they kept and, and outside it would say vacancy vacancy and then mac would go in and come back out and say they say no vacant they said there is no vacant there is uh, every they're all filled up no vacancy so we after about the third try i am thinking to myself as a kid i'm thinking what's wrong with mac doesn't he realize they don't they don't want you here <laughs> and so we saw this guy, this colored, this black guy, they was back then people called colored,
3: Right.
1: walking down the, the strip. We stopped him and we told him our dilemma. And he said, well, ma'am, don't you know they don't allow us colored folks to stay on the strip? I said, my mother said, well, I'm with my daughter. She's a singer and she's coming here to join Duke Ellington, who's appearing in the lounge at the Riviera Hotel and Casino. Isn't Duke staying there with his band? The man said, "Oh no, ma'am, he can't be staying there. He's got to be staying over on the west side at the West Hotel. I mean, motel. It was a motel owned by Doctor West." We found, We went to a pay phone and called, and sure enough, Duke was staying there with the whole band. And so we went over there. We had. They had a vacancy there and we went over there and got two rooms and we stayed there as well. And uh, they called it, by the way, at that time, it, the West side was referred to as the Dust Bowl. And that's where all people of color were staying. There, all black colored people were staying over there. Doctors, lawyers, every everyday people. Yeah, and they had some nice house. They had nice homes over there. I mean, it was no shanties. There were no shanties. Mm-hmm. And we wound up renting a house after staying at the motel for like a few, like maybe a week and then we rented a house and we, and we stayed longer because I was able to get booked. Uh, and Mac did this, he found uh, there was this hotel casino called the Sans Souci Hotel, Sans Souci Hotel. It was located right on the strip directly across the street from the Sans Hotel. And that's where Sammy Davis Jr. and Frank Sinatra were appearing, okay? So I was booked into the lounge and it was free to pay with the Mac Ferguson trio. Wow. That's and I still cool. I still have a little a magazine, a program magazine from that day.
0: Oh that, that's I great. Still have that. now, you you worked with Sammy. You worked with with later Frank. on,
1: years later I worked with Sammy, not then.
0: You, you guys were buddies though, later on.
1: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I you were kind of friends times. with
0: the rat pack too, right?
1: Well, Sinatra. Yeah, I met Sina- Sinatra. I met him. And how I met him was I, I was appearing at a small club here in L.A. that was located right on the corner of Santa Monica and La Cienega. It was called The Losers. That was what a, what a name for a club. <laughs> yeah. It was a small, like a small little little club. And I was appearing there. And one night, it was you know, I couldn't see, I could barely, it was dark, you know, I'm, I'm on stage and I'm just working with a trio. And that was when people were allowed to smoke in the inside the clubs. And somebody in the who was sitting right in the front lit a cigarette, and the, the, the light, the illumination from the cigarette from the match, like just for a couple of seconds lit his face up. It was Frank Sinatra. And I almost died. I I like to like my heart stopped beating, (laughs) literally stopped beating faster. And when I finished my set, the owner came up to me and said, Frida, I want you to, I want to take you over to meet Frank. Wow. And he introduced me to Frank. I sat down and he said to me, you know, Quincy Jones sent me over here. He told me to come here and check you out because wow. I had already met Quincy and I'd mm-hmm. already worked with Quincy by that time. How cool is that? So. And then another time I was appearing at the Fontainebleau Hotel in Miami in Florida. And this was like maybe the same year or maybe a year later, I think it might've been the same year. And I was appearing in the lounge and Frank was staying in the penthouse because he was doing a film at the time so he was staying permanently in, in the penthouse and he would come down and catch my my show and then during the day he said why don't you come up and hang out with us so I can't he would invite me to come up to the penthouse and just hang out you know but, like I was was he as lucky. cool
0: as everybody remembers him as being or he was a down-to-earth guy right
1: he you 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 didn't want to test his temper because he would <laughs> show you where he was really at I remember once in the lounge, I think he had gotten angry with somebody. And he just threw, a, threw some chairs. Wow. Yeah, I saw that. But hmm. then when I, I was hanging out with him, he was just nice. And, you know, I would think, you would think, well, did he ever hit on you or anything like that? He never hit on me. He treated, he was, he, one thing he said to me, Frida, I like you. He says, you're a good singer and you're a lady. That's what he said.
0: That's pretty cool. That's. If pretty he had
1: cool. hit on me, he would have found out something different.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, so,
2: one of the common themes that I noticed in the book, because you keep pointing it out, is you have these many instances of deja vu, you call it, where you have, were somewhere when you were younger and you ended up appearing there when you were older. You mentioned the Holiday House.
1: Holiday House was
2: one. The uh, Fisher Theater that you used to go to as a kid for movies. Yes. Where you, were, you uh, performed there. How often, I mean, I can imagine that, you know, that that has happened quite a bit to you over the years.
1: Yes, it has. It was the Fisher that used to be a movie theater and and quite one of the nicest ones, by the way. And I loved going to the Fisher Theater. And then they, but years later they it, uh, they redid it and it became a theater for, for uh, performances, live performances. And I wound up doing uh, Duke Ellington's sophisticated ladies there when we were on tour, oh, and that we were on tour and we uh, we uh, performed at the Fisher Theater. Mm-hmm. I think it was like a two-week engagement, and let's uh, say the Holiday House, uh, the Copacabana in New York. I used to I didn't perform there, but I used to go, I used to go there to see other people, like you know like Adam Wade. I think I went to see him. Uh, I'm trying to think who else. Who I had to go to see uh, Rich Little. He was a comedian. Uh, remember? Uh, do you remember Rich Little? Of course.
0: Oh, yes. Yeah.
1: He, imp- he did impersonation. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Don Rickles.
3: Of course.
1: Yeah. And Love. uh and then I wound up headlining there myself years later. So. Yeah.
0: So you're known. I mean, obviously, if people know you from your hit songs. But you're really a jazz singer. That's I'm that's really your thing.
1: a jazz singer, and that's what I what I am and have been doing for the last several years. Many, yeah, yeah. I, I that's my Actually, that's what's kept my career going, is being a jazz singer because I've been able to do Ella Fitzgerald uh, tributes. I have also done theatrically. I have portrayed Ella on the theatrical stage. Uh, in padded, padded clothes, you know the little short hair wigs. Uh, the 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 name of the play is Ella Fitzgerald, First Lady of Song, and I have done it four times now. I wow. first did it in two thousand and four, at Crossroads in New Brunswick, New Jersey, and I, then I did it again ten years later. I did it two thousand uh, fourteen. At Ale- in Alexandria, Virginia at Metro Stage. And then I did it, uh, Metro Stage. And then I did it at the Delaware Theater in Delaware, uh, Wilmington, Delaware. And then I just did it uh, this past August into September in New York, a place called Rockville Center, New York, which is really Long Island at the Madison Theater on the campus of Malloy College. And uh, I play Ella, and of course, the other actors, there's, uh, there's Norman Grants, who was Ella's manager, there's Georgiana, who was Ella's cousin, who traveled with her, and then there's Frances, who was her half-sister. And so uh, I've been reviewed in the Washington Post and other newspapers, and I've gotten rave reviews playing Ella Fitzgerald.
0: It's- oh, yeah. Well, obviously, you've done it four times. They ask you back. So you must have done something right.
1: <laughs> yes. And of course, I owe that to Maurice Hines, who really? is, uh, oh. you know, he and his brother Gregory Hines are right. great da- dancers. Were a great dance team. And of course, Gregory went off on his own eventually and did his own thing. And he's won Tony's and, um, you know, Tony he became to a that. big star. Mm-hmm. Gregory Hines he became a Gregory became a really big star and Maurice did his thing too he was a star as well and an excellent performer and an actor and Maurice is the one that called me to do Ella he called me because he felt that uh I was the right I was right for it
2: that's awesome so, well, I wanna oh I was going to bring up um a couple of charities that you're involved with because we tend to do that with as oh, many yeah. as possible, because we can put the charities on our website if people decide they want to um, donate. And I know you're part of the uh, Thalians. Thalians,
1: they call it Thalians.
2: Thalians. and that's a, uh, a a charity that uh, helps uh, mental health uh, causes. And right now, you know, Operation Mend at UCLA is the one that works with um, veterans both physical and mental uh, uh, medical problems that they have. How'd you get involved with that?
1: Well, with the Thalians, I did, I used to appear, they would you know, ask me to appear on some of their award shows at, when they were at the Beverly Hilton Hotel in the, um, in the Grand Ballroom and the International Ballroom and I would be performing with you know for them they would request that I would come and do something and I did and I recently this I think this 2021 was it 2000 yeah 2021 I was honored by the Thalians uh at the Waldorf Astoria hotel in in Beverly Hills I was honored and I think I've been recently asked to join the board so I think I will I will do that and then, of course, I've, my other charity, which I really, uh, really feel is even just as important, if, or if not more, is breast cancer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Breast cancer, because my mother passed away from breast cancer in 1977. And then my sister, Sherry, she got breast cancer several years ago, but now she's breast cancer free. And because uh, they caught it in time, that's great. There specific
2: a specific organization summer. that you uh, like, Susan Coleman, or what is the one that you support?
1: Well, I just did a benefit for the breast cancer at uh, on the uh, on the stu- at uh, Paramount studio, studio this past Sunday, and I think it's that one. I think that's the one Susan I did.
3: Coleman,
2: probably, yeah.
1: Yeah, it was Sunday. It was last Sunday on the lot of Paramount Pictures outdoors. And I did, and I uh, performed for them. That's
2: all. Yeah, I mean, my uh, I'm a plastic surgeon. About half my practice is breast cancer patients, uh, mm-hmm. reconstruction and all that kind of stuff. And we're mm-hmm. just coming out of Breast Cancer Awareness Month, uh, which, uh, you know, we we have posted articles and videos and educational stuff. So this mm-hmm. will also be a good one for us. Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. I'm lucky. You know, can I ask you, Dr. <laughs> when it comes to that, someone told me, now you're gonna, I don't know if you believe this or not, but I had a lady tell me, uh, this was back in the, I think in the 70s, and she was a spiritualist, you know, sort of like a psychic person. And at that time, this was just before my mother died. And she said, Your my mother your mother is going to probably pass away from breast cancer. And she said, and then she said, and you're probably thinking that you and your sister will be very vulnerable because it runs in sometimes in family lines. If you have the same, you know, you have the same genes or whatever. She said, but for some reason, you're never going to get it because your genetic, uh, your chromosomes aren't exactly the same. And she said that. And to this day, I've never had a problem.
2: Yeah. And how old was your mom when she passed from it?
1: 56.
2: And so, yeah, nowadays what they do in women who are 50, right around 50 or less is they do uh, a, gene, a genetic testing and to see if they're positive. And if they are, they generally will test the, the daughters as well. Yes. So it's possible. I don't, I don't know if your sister ended up getting genetically tested or not. but
1: No, but she, the, got, she got it.
2: Yeah. And how old was she?
1: Well, Which Sherry is two years, my junior. Oh, I think when she got it, oh, God, this has been like about six or seven years ago.
2: Yeah. I so, I you know, if, if you were, God forbid, to ever get it, it would be the sort of standard getting old and and we tend to get cancers. Uh, so, yeah, you're, you're 80 or 82. I would not worry about it uh, at this point in time. <laughs> I mean, well, it.
1: you know what? I, my mother, if my mother were, I mean, she wouldn't be alive today. Anyway, she'd be over a hundred. So, but I remember her mama saying once to me, she said, don't ever mess with your breast or get a breast job or anything like that because you could get sick or you could get cancer. My God, I've had two or three breast jobs. Yeah, that part's
2: not true. Uh, Yeah, so
1: I know. I mean, I'm, that's my mother. She she thought if yeah. you smoked a marijuana cigarette, you'd become a drug addict. <laughs> <laughs> you,
2: know, you know, it seems like she gave you good advice early on in your career. Yeah. Uh, that stood you in good stead. And thank you for for bringing the awareness with breast cancer, because it is important and it is a little bit of an epidemic right now. So um,
1: Yeah. Well, so far, I'm good. I mean, I've had, okay, when I had my son, I nursed him for a year and then when i when i when my ducks dried my breasts were hanging down to my <laughs> there were and it was like stretch marks on my <laughs> breast and i said oh my god i can't wear my gowns i'm going to so what i did i had a mesoplaxy. right you know That's and they limit. put it. yeah right. they put them up and they and then they added you know implants yeah. i wore those i had those implants for 22 years and then um i decided upon the advice of another aplastic surgeon to have them replaced and I had them replaced and then uh, there was silicone and then there was saline right yeah and so I had the saline put in and then after a while I decided I didn't like that big breast look anymore and so I went back and had them removed and then I said aren't you going to put implant back in he said he says, "Frida, you've got enough tissue in your your own breast. You don't do you want it?" I said, "No, I don't." So now I've got big. I, st- I still wear the same size bra, <laughs> and I don't have implants.
0: You <laughs> heard it first. Frida Payne was, still wears the same bra.
1: <laughs> right. I wear the same bra, and when I was 12 years old, I was fully developed, and I w- have 34C. And I used to be, the kids at school, the girls were jealous of me. They used to call me Big Titty Frida <laughs> because they weren't developed. I developed young. I developed early and they weren't de- Now those same girls, like by the time they get to got to be, you know, 15, 16, 17, they had bigger breasts. But back then they were jealous of me for that.
2: I'll bet. And that's why your mama was so careful with you because that's right. there were a <laughs> lot of wolves
0: out there.
1: Oh baby, let me tell you, that's when I learned how to fight and beat up boys.
0: There you go. Because so, I had
1: to fight them off.
0: <laughs> let me ask you a question. So I remember we're not that much in age difference, but I do remember as a kid, um, I had a big crush on you, of course, who didn't. Um, especially when you know you came out with your hit songs and you were all over the place. You're on Carson, you're on you're on the Jerry Lewis Telethon. I always remember every single year that he would have you on and you would come on and he was he was gaga over you I remember that and you would come on every year so you donated your time for that and you were a big big he was a big fan of yours I remember
1: oh yeah and Jerry Lewis back then in the 60s he was a huge star Mm -hmm. he was very he was he was he was the man as they say he was he was the man he's um you know, and and he was quite revered in, we went, I opened for him in France, in Paris at the Olympia, and that was 1971, and he was, he was considered like, like a god in comedy. Yeah,
0: they loved him in France for some Oh, yeah, they loved him.
1: Yeah, they loved him.
0: And when did, did you, you did Johnny Carson.
1: Oh, I did Chuck Carson many many times. times. Many times.
0: Was he, did you like him, did you get along with him, or was it superficial?
1: Oh, I loved, I mean, I liked him. Um, I remember once he said, uh, I was sitting, um, on in the chair and he said, this is after I'd finished singing. And he said, uh, uh, where do you live? I'd like to visit you. And then I said, I'm staying at the YWCA. <laughs> he said, well, I can't, he said, I don't think I can get there. Get up there. <laughs> <You know? laughs>
0: That's great. Now,
1: these
2: are all and such was great true. I was
1: At that time, I was staying at the YWCA.
2: So this is Frida Payne's book. Everybody get it. It's, a, it's an insightful look into the music industry from the 60s on by superstar Frida Payne. Thank you so much for being with us
0: today. And,
2: and
1: thank let's, you.
0: Let's do this again.
1: Yes, oh, definitely. There's more again. to
0: explore here. More and I'll have explore. makeup on well if you, you know I can't wait to see you with makeup on because if this is how you look <laughs> amazing have a great have a great event and thank you so much
1: you're welcome Thanks, and thank you
3: thank All you right, bye-bye okay